My name is Al Getz, and this is Stats 101. This month on Stats 101, I will discuss the new statistic called FLW that I developed to measure feuds that is in some ways like the sabermetric baseball stat, WAR. I'll explain what FLW, which stands for Feud Length in Weeks, is intended to measure, some basics on how it's calculated, and then I'll look at some factors that can affect the score. From there, we'll recap some of the larger FLW scores I have seen in my testing of this stat across the McGurk territory for a 20-plus year period, and then we'll look at some FLW scores from other territories that I have researched, and we'll take a closer look at two of the most well-known feuds involving the Freebirds to see how they stack up. Now, just a warning, this entire episode of Stats 101 is going to be about this statistic. Uh, some of the episodes in the past have talked about various trips I've taken for research. This one is going to be all about this stat. So if, if that's not your cup of tea, it wouldn't offend me at all if you skipped this episode and waited for future ones. Of course, the regular monthly Charting the Territories podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. And on the second Thursday of every month, we alternate between Stats 101 and Wrestling History Mysteries. Over the last couple of years, I've experimented with a couple of different ways to measure feuds. All of them were based on one overarching principle, which held true for most territories most of the time. And that principle is this. If it draws, keep doing it. In much of the territorial era, there weren't WrestleManias or pay-per-views or supercards where it was plotted out ahead of time that a feud would peak to a specified show or on a specified date. This allowed promoters and bookers the freedom to let a feud run its natural course at the box office, and furthermore allowed for differences from town to town. If a feud drew well in one town, they would have inconclusive finishes to build to rematches with stipulations. But if that same feud did not draw well its first time out in another town in the same territory, they might just put the babyface over clean and try something different the following week. The way territories were set up allowed them to do this. The most well-known example of this is the WWWF. They were almost always built around a babyface champion, fending off challenges from a variety of monster heels. At any given time, there were a few such heels in the territory. Generally speaking, they would run an angle on TV establishing the need for the champion to defend the title against one of these threats. From there, they'd send it around to the various towns in the territory, and usually the larger cities first. In some towns, they'd run one or two rematches, and this was usually decided by the paid attendance for the matches. They would come up with creative finishes designed to build interest in a rematch, with stipulations generally tied into the finish. Uh, If, for example, the heel kept running out of the ring, the rematch could be a lumberjack match or a steel cage match. If both wrestlers were disqualified because the match broke down into a wild, uncontrollable brawl, the rematch might be a no-disqualification match, etc. And these stipulations might vary from town to town based on what had drawn well in the town previously or trying not to duplicate a stipulation match that had been done recently. 
each town could have its own narrative. So to measure a feud, my approach has always been the more times it happens, the better. If one of Bruno Sammartino's opponents didn't draw well in most towns, and it was a one-and-done feud most of the time, that should be rated lower than a feud which drew well enough to have one or two rematches in most of those towns. After a couple of attempts to create a statistic to measure this, I still wasn't happy with the results. I was looking for a way to look at a feud at a glance, where the output is one number that means something. So I looked to some of the more advanced baseball statistics that have become popular in recent years, and I settled on the stat called WAR. What is it good for? A lot, actually. WAR stands for Wins Above Replacement. It approximates how many more victories a team got over the course of one season because of all the contributions of an individual player than they would have gotten if they had what they term a replacement-level player instead. The term replacement-level player is meant to describe a non-superstar, an average Joe, if you will, but an average Joe that's a Major League Baseball player or a high AAA player, not an average person off the street. War doesn't actually measure these wins. It's not counting how many times that player hit a game-winning home run or made a spectacular play on defense that prevented the game-winning run from scoring. It aggregates all of a player's contributions at the plate, on the bases, in the field, and on the mound, and scales the output such that it's a number that we can easily understand. And what's most impressive about the stat is that even though it's not measuring real victories, if you add up the war for all the players on one team in one season, it very closely mirrors that win-loss record of the team above what would happen if you fielded a team of all replacement-level players based on statistical analysis. I wanted to create a statistic like war, one where the output is easily understandable. And since we've already established that the bigger feuds lasted longer, the idea was to make the output a measurement of time. How long did the feud last? In 1977, Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee began a feud in Memphis. While they feuded on and off for many years afterwards, their most recent match, I think, was in 2010, this phase of their feud had a very specific start point and end point. They ended up wrestling for 11 straight weeks in Memphis. In fact, the 10th match was supposed to have been the ultimate and final blow-off with no possible rematch to happen, with Lawler announcing he would retire after the match, and both he and Dundee putting their hair on the line. In a twist, since fans may have expected Lawler to lose since he was retiring, he actually won the match, and Bill got his head shaved. But that 10th match had drawn so well and had such interest that promoter Jerry Jarrett felt he could squeeze one more gate out of the feud. So Lawler was brought back for one more match. Now, in reality, his retirement was part of an angle meant to turn him babyface, so it wasn't that difficult to get him back. And they asked Bill to see if his wife, Beverly, would agree to get her head shaved, which she did. And another packed crowd came out to see the match. The feud did not run as long in the other towns that made up Jarrett's territory. They went eight weeks in Louisville, eight weeks in Evansville, and then the other towns we have data for, and the biggest one we're missing is Tupelo, but of the other towns, they ran far less often. In many ways, the FLW stat is an average 
of all of these. Going back to the WWWF, if one of Bruno's opponents was a one-and-done in half the towns and a two-match series in the other half, the FLW would be somewhere in the vicinity of one-and-a-half months or expressed in weeks, something approximating six weeks, though it would be less than that for reasons that we'll discuss later on. But back to Lawler and Dundee, the feud went 11 weeks in Memphis, eight weeks in Louisville, eight weeks in Evansville, and between one and four times in the other towns. So we'd expect the number to be a little less than eight, and it is. It ends up being a 6.72. That basically means that if you look at all the different towns in the territory, and at this point in time, Jarrett was mostly running one show a night, uh, but on average, the Lawler-Dundee feud ran for just under seven weeks. And since Lawler-Dundee is considered one of the textbook examples of a very long-running feud, we would expect that number, the 6.72, to be among the highest observations. Since I first came up with FLW, I've tested it throughout a dozen or so U.S. and Canadian territories at various times. For the most part, the data I have is from the first half of the 1970s. For Leroy McGurk's territory, I have data for a much larger period of time. In my testing of this stat in Leroy's territory, which covers most of the time period between 1959 and 1981, uh, to be honest, I have not looked at the years 1967 through 1970, and there were some years where I handpicked one or two quarters as opposed to looking at the whole year. But for that entire period, I calculated FLW scores on a quarter-by-quarter basis, and these adhere to the calendar, so it's always January through March, April through June, etc., On Twitter, in early January, I counted down a list of 11 feuds with the largest FLW scores for a single quarter. First up on the list at number 11 was Danny Hodge versus Jack Briscoe in the third quarter of 1966, which had an FLW score of 3.97. Number 10 was Bob Sweetan versus Ken Mantell from 1973 with an FLW of 4.16. Numbers 9 through 6 all had FLW scores of between 4 and 5. In ascending order, they were the Hollywood Blondes of Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown versus Greg Valentine and Gorgeous George Jr. from 1976, Paul Orndorff versus The Brute, who was Bugsy McGraw in 1978, Ernie Ladd versus Ray Candy from 1978, and Danny Hodge versus Tarzan Baxter. Number 5 was Dick Murdoch versus Killer Carl Cox, with an FLW of 5.34. Number four was Buck Robley and the Junkyard Dog versus Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy from 1980, with an FLW of 5.66. And interestingly enough, the top three all involved Ken Mantell. Number three was his first big feud in 1974, where he feuded with Skandor Akbar. Later that same year, his feud with Buck Robley had an FLW score of 6.74, And coming in at number one was Ken's feud with Paul Orndorff in the second quarter of 1980, which had an FLW of 7.91. And that feud continued on full speed the next quarter, where it had an FLW of 6.48. Now, many of these feuds, aside from Mantell and Orndorff, lasted more than a quarter. Ray Candy versus Ernie Ladd, Dick Murdoch versus Killer Carl Cox definitely played out over a much longer period of time. As we continue to chart the territories, 
we can look at the FLW scores for a full calendar year to get a better view of what the biggest feuds were on a year-by-year basis. And in the case of Murdoch and Cox, they actually their feud actually began in very late 1975 and stretched all the way through to 1977, at which point the roles had been reversed. Originally, Murdoch was the babyface feuding with Killer Carl Cox the heel, but by the time the feud wrapped up in 77, Cox was the babyface and Murdoch was the heel. But back to the list. Of those 11 feuds, the individual FLW scores ranged from a 3.97 to a 7.91. So we see that an FLW score of above a 4 in a three-month period of time is a pretty rare event. It only happened uh, 10 or 11 times over most of a 22-year period that I looked at. If we think of wrestling feuds playing out in the same way as books, movies, and some TV shows, we can picture a three-part story arc. This is how many wrestling matches are structured, with the first act being the early stages of a match where the characters are firmly established and they have a feeling-out process and the babyface gets some shine. The second act is the heat phase, and the third act is the babyface's comeback leading up to the finish. This mirrors many forms of scripted entertainment. Now, wrestling feuds can also follow this same pattern over the length of the feud, not just the individual matches. For this reason, a three-match series is often considered to be the maximum a feud will run unless it's really clicking and drawing well. And this would explain why an FLW above a three is pretty rare. Continuing to discuss my testing of this new stat, as I mentioned earlier, I looked at several other territories. Before we get into the results of that, I want to talk a little bit about how FLW is calculated. If you've followed charting the territories for any length of time, you'll know the primary stat that we use to evaluate a wrestler's role in their territory is the spot rating. Spot is expressed as a number between 0 and 1 that represents where on the card, on average, a wrestler is slotted. If they're always in the main event, their spot would be a 1.00. If they're usually, but not always in the main event, it'll be a little lower, perhaps between a 0.80 and a 1.00. And then you have wrestlers that might occasionally be in a main event, but are generally lower on the card, and so on and so on, until you get to the preliminary wrestlers, who usually wrestle in the early matches on a card, and typically have a spot rating of less than 0.40. Much in the same way I calculate spot ratings for individual wrestlers, I can do the same for individual matches. Instead of looking at all of, say, Danny Hodge's matches in a short period of time, I could look at all of the Danny Hodge versus Tarzan Baxter matches from that same period of time to calculate the FLW. I basically sum up all the times the match happens and divide that by an estimate of how complete the data I have is. Uh, In a very simple example, let's say we have records for every house show from a territory that ran shows six nights a week. If wrestler A faced wrestler B every single night for three weeks straight, and those were the only matches between them, the FLW would be a 3.00, which makes sense as the feud lasted exactly three weeks. But let's say we only had partial data for the territory. Let's say we know they ran the same six towns every single week, but we only have house show listings for three of them. If wrestler A faced wrestler B on every single show we have records for in that same three-week period, then the FLW for that would also be a 3.00. 
much in the same way that earned run average in baseball scales a pitcher's performance to a nine-inning period, even if they only pitch three or if they pitch much more than nine, we are basically using the data we have and assuming that the data we're missing looks very similar. This should hold true as long as the following conditions are met. One, we have a reasonable percentage of the entire data set, i.e. house show records. If we have half or more, I feel perfectly comfortable saying we have a reasonable amount of data, and even if it's between 40 and 50% complete, I think the output would be valid. The second condition is that, in the event our data set is not complete, it needs to be a fair representative of the whole data set. So as an example, if a territory ran a very strict schedule of one A show and one B show every night, where the A show has a higher level of talent and perhaps more matches than the B show that may be held in a smaller town, then I would want to make sure the data set we have is a reasonable mix of some A towns and some B towns. If we only had A towns or we only had B towns, the output wouldn't be as useful. In a way... Calculating FLW is similar to taking all of the known matches between two wrestlers or two teams, where they may be spread out over a several-month period with a couple of matches some weeks and a few matches other weeks, and seeing how long it would have taken to run through those matches if they had occurred on consecutive days. So if they had 21 matches over an eight-week period of time and the territory ran house shows seven nights a week, we're basically saying the feud ran for three weeks. And so it would have an FLW score of 3.00. Now, there are a couple of factors that affect the FLW score. The first is where on the card the match happens. When we think of a feud, we're typically talking about a series of matches that almost always are the advertised main event. When Bob Backlund is defending his title against Ivan Koloff, it's the most important match presented in advertising materials. Now, even though in the WWF the match may have happened halfway through the card, the spot rating is based on how the card is advertised, not necessarily how it actually happens the night of the show. But there are some occasions where a match that's part of a feud is not the main event. It might be the semi-main underneath an NWA world title defense, or in a lot of cases, the first match in the series is the semi-main. Perhaps the main event on that show is going to feature a clean finish, so they run an angle in the semi to build to a rematch. And the following week, that rematch would likely move up to main event status. But if a feud does have a significant number of matches that are not the main events of the cards they're on, the FLW will be lower than one where it's always in the main event. Another factor is how spread out the matches are over time. The way I calculate FLW rewards a feud when they have a match at least once every week for a several-week period of time. A match that happens once in each of three consecutive weeks will have a higher FLW than another match that happened three times over a five-week period. And the more consecutive weeks it happens, that sort of juices the numbers and gives it a higher FLW. A third factor that can affect FLW is if one of the, or more of the wrestlers involved in the feud is not wrestling a full-time schedule. While we've all heard that every single wrestler worked seven days a week twice on Sundays, as wrestling historians have uncovered more and more house show records, we have learned that this is not always true. 
In fact, there are two main types of wrestlers who didn't wrestle six or seven house shows per week, and this holds true for most territories most of the time. The first group is the preliminary wrestlers, in particular the younger ones who are gaining experience. There is significant evidence that they are booked in less matches than the more established veterans. In many cases, they're still at the shows they're not wrestling on. Sometimes they'll work as a referee, or perhaps they're just on hand to fill in if a wrestler was hurt the night before or has travel issues the day of, and in some cases they're just there to watch and learn. The other group generally consists of babyface main eventers who also own and or book the territory. Guys like Fritz Von Erich, Eddie Graham, Vern Gagne, and Bill Watts did not wrestle every night of the week, even though their territory ran shows every night. Another wrestler who fits this category is the Sheik, though he, of course, was not a babyface in the territory he owned. And typically, the WWWF champion was in this category as well. Bruno, Backlund, at times Hogan, often worked a lesser schedule than the rank-and-file WWWF wrestlers. But since FLW is scaled based on how many shows the territory is running as a whole, someone who only wrestles half the week would theoretically need to feud with an opponent for twice as long to get an FLW score similar to a full-timer wrestling every night against the same opponent. And another factor, which I mentioned previously, is that most of the time I will be displaying FLW scores in three-month chunks of time tied to the calendar year. So it's always going to be January through March, April through June, July through September, or October through December. The point of this exercise for now is just to get a feel for what good FLW scores are. As I continue my research and my charting of these territories, we can look at the top feuds for the whole year and even for a longer period of time, as opposed to just in these predefined three-month chunks. So with all that being said, Let's look at some other territories and note the higher FLW scores that I've observed. I looked at Florida for all of 1973 and the first quarter of 1971, and the largest scores I found were a 4.07 for a feud between the teams of Mike Graham and Kevin Sullivan and the Samoans. In this case, the Samoans are Tio and Tapu. And then Buddy Colt versus Paul Jones with a 3.32. I looked at Georgia Championship Wrestling in two different quarters, one in 1971 and one in 1976, and the highest FLW I found was a 2.32 for Mr. Wrestling 2 versus The Spoiler. Central States, where I looked at all of 1971 through 1976, the highest FLW was a 4.35 for Mike George versus Bob Brown. In the Ghoulist territory in the first quarter of 1971, the highest FLW was a 4.13 for Alan Don Green versus Jerry Jarrett and Tojo Yamamoto. In Mid-Atlantic, the feud with the highest FLW in the first quarter of 1973 was Big Boy Brown and Klondike Bill versus the Kangaroos, uh, Jonathan Boyd and Norman Charles, with a 3.47. In Portland, The feud between Dutch Savage and Bull Ramos in the first quarter of 1972 had a 3.86. In Southeastern in 1978, Boris Malenko versus Ronnie Garvin had a 3.81. Stampede in 1972 saw Archie Goldie, the Mongolian stomper, versus Dan Crawford as the big feud with an FLW of 2.38. So as you can see, The idea of FLW above a 4 is still a pretty rare event, 
save for the biggest feuds in the territory over a period of time. So this holds up with what we observed in the McGurk Territory. Now, two territories where the highest FLW scores I found were lower than I expected are both in Texas. In East Texas, the highest FLW I found between the years 1971 and 1973 was Wahoo McDaniel versus Toru Tanaka with a 3.25. And in Amarillo, the high FLW was even lower, a 2.15 for the feud between Ricky Romero and Hank James. In the case of Amarillo, a major factor at play was that the Funk family are not wrestling full-time in their home territory. Prior to his death in 1973, Dory Sr. was wrestling part-time, and his two sons were in demand all across the world. Dory Jr. was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion up through May of 1973, and Terry was working in numerous territories as well. But when they were wrestling in their home base, they're occupying the main event slots, making it harder for a feud with the regulars in the territory to accumulate a high score. Another factor affecting both of the Texas-based territories is that in both Western state sports, Amarillo, and East Texas's big-time wrestling, the local promoters seem to have a lot more say into how they book their shows. In West Texas, Don Slatton was the local promoter in Abilene, and he often put himself in main events against the top heels of the day, whereas in the rest of the territory, he's usually a mid-carder. And in El Paso, Gory Guerrero would bring in wrestlers from Mexico to fill out the cards, often bringing in Mil Mascaras or El Santo, and even having one or more of his sons wrestling. Because of this, you don't see feuds that are hitting every town in the loop, as each town has its own tale to tell and the local promoters seem to have more leeway to book what they want. The same thing happened in East Texas. Fritz's fingerprints are all over Dallas and Fort Worth, but what happens in those towns isn't always repeated later on in San Antonio or Austin or Corpus Christi. And of course, Paul Bosch is doing his own thing in Houston, even though he's booking most of Fritz's crew and just adding in a few fly-ins like the world champ or Ernie Ladd or on occasion some of his trainees like Leo Seitz and Tiger Conway Jr. So there's less consistency across these two territories as compared to most. Now, I also went ahead and handpicked two territories because I wanted to look at some specific things. The first was the Lawler-Dundee feud in 1977, which I discussed earlier in this podcast. As it turns out, the FLW for Lawler and Dundee is one of the three highest I've observed to date, scanning multiple territories over multiple years. And that's exactly what we would have expected based on what we know about that feud and how it ran for a virtually unprecedented length in Memphis. But I also wanted to look at a feud in the WWWF, and I wanted to do this for two reasons. First, since we've already established that the WWWF champion didn't usually wrestle every night, what would the FLW score for a champ look like against one of his biggest challengers? Second, since the WWWF ran most of their towns once a month as opposed to once a week, how would that affect things? A three-week feud in Memphis would have an FLW of 3.00, but if a feud in the WWWF ran for three months, would we see some feuds with a much higher FLW? As it turns out, we probably won't, but I don't have enough info to state that as a matter of fact, just quite yet. I looked at the first quarter of 1979 when Bob Backlund was feuding with Peter Maivia. 
I picked this time frame for a reason. It's one of the few times where the bulk of a feud happens in a specific three-month period of time uh, coordinated with a calendar. It started in late 1978, and they did have some matches in December of that year, but the bulk of their house show feud took place between January and March of 1979. So the FLW score I calculated would include most of their matches. The FLW for Backman versus Maivia was a 4.14, which, as previously stated, is a rare occurrence, but again, I would have expected the number to be higher because they ran their towns monthly. So I dug a little deeper into the data, and here's what I found. Now remember, the WWWF champ typically doesn't wrestle every night, so he's usually wrestling in the major cities. But there are times when he wrestles in these smaller venues. And in these cases, it's almost always a one-and-done. The idea being they aren't bringing Backland back the following month, and in some cases they ran those smaller towns less often than once a month. So it's more of a special thing to have the champ there. So he's almost certainly going to go over clean over one of the heels of the, of the month. But you're now mixing in a lot of these one-and-dones in the smaller towns along with the two-and-three-match series in other towns. And as we aggregate everything together, those small-town bookings lower the FLW, which was already going to be slightly lower because Backland is not wrestling a full schedule. Now, records for the WWWF around this time are less complete than you might think. Even with the incredible work of the guys running the history of WWE website, first Graham Cawthon and now Richard Land, Records are less than 65% complete. But let's look at what we do have. Backlund and Maivia had a three-match series in Madison Square Garden, Baltimore, and Albany. In Springfield and Pittsburgh, they had a two-match series. And in 10 other towns, it appears they did a one-and-done. So taking into consideration that Backlund isn't wrestling six or seven nights a week, and there are quite a bit of one-and-dones in this feud, the 4.14 looks much more realistic. In a perfect world... I'd look at the WWWF over a several-year period instead of handpicking just one quarter, and I'd also do the same for the other territory, mainly based on a monthly loop, which was the AWA. So perhaps someday I'll be able to get to that. Now, if you've been paying attention, you might have noticed one minor flaw with the FLW scores that come into play on occasion. We are measuring specific instances of wrestler A versus wrestler B or team C versus team D. But there are occasions where one person is feuding with a group of persons. In the McGurk and Mid-South territories, the most well-known example of this would probably be the feud between Junkyard Dog and the Freebirds in 1980. When we looked at the top 11 FLW scores I've observed from that territory, one match involving these wrestlers made the list, and that was JYD and Buck Robley versus Hayes and Gordy. But the larger feud of JYD versus the Freebirds had many other stages. Those tag matches with Robley were the first phase. Then there was a singles feud between JYD and Gordy. Then there was JYD and Robley versus Gordy and Buddy Roberts. Then there was JYD versus Hayes. Then JYD and various partners versus all three birds. And finally, JYD and Terry Orndorff, Paul's brother, versus Gordy and Roberts. So the first question is, can we measure the FLW scores for JYD versus the Freebirds? And if so, what does it look like? The answer to that first question is yes, we can measure it. 
Now, it's not as simple as just adding up the FLW scores for all of those smaller components of the feud. It requires taking all of those matches, lumping them together as JYD versus the Freebirds, and then calculating the FLW. When I did that, the feud had an FLW of 7.81 in the first quarter of 1980, a 7.10 in the second quarter, a 7.09 in the third quarter, and then a small FLW of 0.34 in the fourth quarter, where the Freebirds actually finished up in early October. So adding all those up, the total FLW score for JYD versus the Freebirds in Mid-South in 1980 was 22.35. So that's the equivalent of about five months, 22 22 weeks and, and change. The feud began in late December of 1979, lasted through early October of 1980, and don't forget that JYD was out for a little under two months with the injury angle that they did in June. So out of the seven and a half or so months that JYD was wrestling in the territory between late December and early October, about two-thirds of the time, five months out of seven and a half months, he is wrestling against at least one Freebird in some form of match. But it's still worth noting that In no individual quarter did the JYD versus Freebirds feud have a higher FLW score than Mantell versus Orndorff that same year. So I really wanted to go back and see if I could think of a feud that might beat that number. And I didn't have to look too hard, as the first one that popped in my head also involved the Freebirds. I'm of course talking about the Freebirds versus Von Erichs feud from World Class that began on Christmas Day of 1982. That feud raged on for the better part of a year in the territory. Now, world class in the 1980s is a territory I hadn't previously charted, so I decided to pick one three-month chunk of time from 1983 and calculate the FLW score for matches involving the Von Erichs against the Freebirds. I chose the fourth quarter of 1983 because I was able to find more house show ads for that time period than the others in the same year. Now, from there, I looked at all singles, tag matches, or six-man tag matches with at least one Von Erich on one side and at least one Freebird on the other. I did add a rule that in the case of a six-man, at least three of the six men involved in the match needed to be either Freebirds or Von Erichs. So if it was Carrie and Chris Adams and Brian Adidas versus Michael Hayes, Boris Zirkoff and Kamala, I wouldn't count that. But if the heel team had been Hayes and Gordy and Kamala, I would. Also, the fourth quarter was when Mike Von Erich debuted, so I counted him as well as Carrie, Kevin, and David. Another rule I thought about was what to do if a house show had two matches involving Von Erichs facing Freebirds. For example, if Mike wrestled Buddy Roberts early in the card and Kevin and David wrestled Hayes and Gordy in the main event. Should I add the spot ratings for both matches together or only take the highest one? I decided to add them together, the idea being if the feud was big enough to have two separate matches on the same show, it's worth counting both of them. And when all was said and done, the FLW score for the Von Erichs versus the Freebirds in the fourth quarter of 1983 was an 11.84. So in a 13-week period of time, They wrestled each other for the equivalent of just under 12 of those weeks, which is pretty amazing, especially when you consider that that feud had already been running for like nine months. 
So there you have it. That's probably more information than you ever wanted to hear about a made-up professional wrestling statistic. But if you still have questions, you can always reach out to me on Twitter, at AlGetsWrestling. My goal, as always, is not just to present stats, but hopefully to inform you as to why I created the stats and how they were created so that we can all better understand them. My original idea for charting the territories was to create some basic back-of-the-baseball-card stats to quantify wrestlers' roles in the territorial era. Between the spot rating, which measures where on the card they wrestled, and this new FLW stat, which can tell you what their biggest feuds were in such a way that you can at a glance know if it was a big feud or a smaller one, we're getting closer and closer to that goal. Thanks for listening to Stats 101. You can reach me on Twitter at AlGetsWrestling. That's L-G-E-T-Z Wrestling. With any questions you have about anything discussed on the podcast. Stats 101, part of the Charting the Territories podcast feed, can be found wherever you get your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com.